welcome to True Crime with Cam. In this episode, we're going to take a look at some of the most interesting cases of vigilante justice. When the system fails to bring a criminal to justice, loved ones of the victims take it into their own hands to deliver punishment they deem fit. I want to give a trigger warning because all of these cases deal with the sexual and physical abuse of children. I don't go into graphic detail about the sexual abuse, but if you think that this episode could potentially be detrimental to your mental health, please do not listen. However, if you do want to hear me talk about pedophiles and registered sex offenders getting killed or their brains bashed in, then you probably want to stick around. On March 6, 1981, Mary Ann burst through the courtroom doors and fired several shots at a man on trial. That man was 35-year-old Klaus Grabowski, a local butcher and pedophile, on his third day of trial for the murder of Mary Ann's daughter. As Klaus's lifeless body was hauled out, journalists captured the only evidence of the crime left behind, his pool of blood. Shortly after the shooting, Marianne stated, quote, I wanted to shoot him in the face, but I only got him in the back. I hope he's dead. The press in Germany instantly dubbed Marianne Revenge Mother. To say that Marianne Backmeyer had a difficult upbringing would be an understatement. Her father was a Nazi soldier whom, before she was even born, fled to Sarstedt with her mother to seek refuge. A short time after Marianne's birth, her parents divorced, and her mother immediately remarried. By the age of 18, Marianne had given birth to two daughters. Both were given up for adoption as infants. While pregnant with her second child, Marianne was reportedly raped. In 1973, the 23-year-old was pregnant again and she gave birth to her third child. She named her daughter Anna and took on the difficult task of raising her alone as a single mother. After Anna's birth, Marianne either underwent surgery or had complications during the birth that would prevent future pregnancies. To keep her and Anna afloat, Marianne ran a pub in what was then West Germany. The same year that Anna was born, Klaus Grabowski was facing a year of probation for attempting to strangle a six-year-old girl. He also sexually abused her and another child, and I'm not sure how old the other child was. In 1976, Klaus underwent chemical castration, which is the process of lowering the hormone production in one's testicles through the use of drugs. Therefore, the production of testosterone is very low, similar to a surgical castration. However, the effects only last a few weeks and would require repeated doses. One of the symptoms of this procedure is reduced or absent sexual desire, but chemical castration isn't a cure or prevention for the violent molestation of children. In 1978, Klaus started hormone treatments to reverse the symptoms and effects. Because the justice system failed to give Klaus a deserved sentence 
he was able to carry out an attack on at least one more child, Anna Backmeyer. On the morning of May 5th, 1980, seven-year-old Anna skipped school to visit a friend that apparently wasn't in school that day either. Several news outlets have reported that Anna and her mother had gotten into a dispute, and this is what caused her to leave or skip school entirely. As Anna was walking to a friend's house, she crossed paths with Klaus Grabowski. Klaus abducted Anna by telling her he had cats at his home and that she could play with them. Anna was kept by Klaus for hours, and the torture ended by him strangling her to death with his fiancé's pantyhose. Anna's body was shoved into a box and buried on the bank of a canal in a shallow grave. Fortunately, Klaus's fiancé somehow found out about Anna's murder and alerted authorities immediately. He was arrested that afternoon and confessed to the murder, but then started to justify his actions to investigators. This truly evil, twisted man claimed that seven-year-old Anna tried to seduce him and blackmail him for money. He said that Anna threatened to tell her mother that he tried to molest her if he didn't pay up. Of course, this story was not believed by anyone, because not only was Klaus a convicted sex offender, but Anna was an innocent child, and blackmail doesn't justify murder. Grabowski's trial came a year later, while Marianne was still grappling with the loss of Anna and the disturbing claims of her killer. On the third day of the trial, Marianne had heard enough of the defense and Klaus's disrespectful lies about her own daughter. In the crowded courtroom, Marianne walked up to the back of Klaus, pulled out a twenty-two caliber pistol, and shot him seven times. He died from his injuries on the courtroom floor. Media covered the event extensively and questioned if the justice system properly dealt with sex offenders in the first place. Many people across the world were praising Marianne for delivering Klaus's justice herself. Her prosecution began as a murder trial in November of 1982. During her trial, it was revealed that the murder weapon was purchased a week before Klaus's trial, proving intent. Marianne's defense argued that she had purchased the gun initially with the intention to take her own life. When she was evaluated by a psychologist, she had to provide a handwriting sample. For this, she wrote, I did it for you, Anna, and decorated it with seven hearts. In interviews years later, Marianne said that she killed Klaus to stop him from making more false statements about her daughter. At some point during the 15-month-long trial, she sold her story to a magazine for what would be today roughly a little over 400,000 U.S. dollars. On March 2, 1982, Marianne was sentenced to six years for voluntary manslaughter. She was released after serving just two years.
Three years later, she married a teacher and moved away with him to Nigeria in 1988. The couple divorced five years later, and Marianne made Sicily her new home for a short time until her diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Marianne lived out the remainder of her years in Germany, with a broadcasting station capturing her final stages of life. On September 17, 1996, she died at the age of 46 and was buried right next to Anna. For the past year, 11-year-old Jody Plache had been taking karate lessons with 25-year-old Jeffrey Doucette. Unfortunately, no one knew that Jeffrey had been sexually abusing Jody that entire time. On February 19, 1974, Jeffrey pulled up to Jody's mother's house and asked him to take him for a ride. He promised her they'd be back within 15 minutes. Jody's mother trusted Jeffrey. He was young, and she probably thought he was being a good influence on her son. Jeffrey had taught karate to two of her other children as well. By this point, he was a close family friend. However, the 15 minutes went by, and Jody and Jeffrey hadn't returned home. Then it was 20, 25, and so forth. Instead of taking Jody on a cruise around the neighborhood, Jeffrey drove them to a bus stop. They hopped on the bus and headed west. Jeffrey knew that authorities would be looking for them, so he tried to stay one step ahead. At some point during their journey, Jeffrey shaved his long beard and dyed Jody's sandy blonde hair to jet black. The two traveled a total of 2,000 miles from Louisiana to a motel in California. There, the abuse continued for Jody Plache. The kidnapping came as a shock for the Plache family. Jody had stated, quote, He's all our best friend to a local newspaper a year prior to the kidnapping. He also quit the football and basketball team so he could focus on training in karate with Jeffrey Doucette. The signs of grooming are often difficult to see, and it's even more difficult for a child to speak up. Jeffrey booked a motel a very short distance from Disneyland. Maybe that's where he told Jody that they were going. While investigators were searching the country for Jody, Jeffrey gave in and let him place a collect call back home. As soon as his mother answered the phone and knew it was her son, she alerted police. They were able to trace the call all the way back to their California motel. On March 1st, 1984, Authorities raided the motel and arrested Jeffrey Doucette. Jody was flown back home to his parents in Louisiana, and this is when investigators finally filled them in on the abuse Jody had endured. Jody's father, 39-year-old Gary Plache, took the news especially hard. He wasn't just sad 
or angry. He wanted revenge. His response to the detective was, I'll kill that son of a bitch. It seems as though a bit of fate was on Gary's side. While out at a bar called the Cotton Club, Gary crossed paths with a former colleague that worked for a local news channel. At one point, Gary had worked as a cameraman himself. Gary asked if he knew when Jeffrey would be brought back to Louisiana and was given an official time and place. 9.08 p.m. at the Baton Rouge Airport. On the morning of March 16, 1984, Gary Plachet drove to the airport with a loaded gun disguised in a baseball cap and sunglasses. He made his way to a wall of payphones right by the hall where Jeffrey would exit his plane. Gary then called a friend and began to describe everything he was doing. Quote, I see them coming. Oh shit, they took him a different way out. No, they're coming and going to walk right past me. As Jeffrey walked down the same hallway in handcuffs, he was escorted by several officers. A news channel was waiting with cameras. Working for them is Gary's former colleague that had informed him about Jeffrey's arrival time. Referring to the cameras, Gary stated, When I see the light come on the camera, I'm going to shoot him. Seconds later, he said, I'm pulling my gun out of my boot and you're going to hear some shots. The news camera follows Jeffrey as he becomes parallel with Gary, unaware it would be his last conscious moments alive. Gary holds the phone in his left hand across his body and uses his right to shoot Jeffrey in the head at point-blank range. Jeffrey falls to the floor and immediately blood begins to pour from his head wound. Gary has just enough time to hang up the phone before two detectives have him pinned against the booth at gunpoint. One detective yelled, Why, Gary? Why? Gary responded, I had to do it. I had to do it. You know what he did to my son. A minute later, Gary stated, If it was your kid, you'd do it too. I'd also like to make a note that the detective Gary is talking to wasn't a random investigator. Bud Connor was a man he had known since childhood. 
The news was apparently broadcasting live when the killing unfolded, spreading the horrors of the event to those casually watching television at home. Gary Plachet was immediately taken to jail and charged in the murder of Jeffrey Doucette. Gary pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity and claimed that he couldn't determine right from wrong due to the emotional distress of his son being kidnapped. His defense argued that Plachet became temporarily insane after learning about the abuse his son endured. The outcome of Gary's trial was completely up in the air. Some people praised his actions, while others condemned him for the act of killing another human being despite what Jeffrey had done. This wasn't the case for the locals. They had already decided in their minds that Jeffrey's murder was completely justified. If Gary was found guilty, he would have to spend the rest of his life in prison. On August 27, 1985, Gary was sentenced. He took a plea deal from the prosecution and pleaded no contest to manslaughter. In return, he was given a seven-year suspended sentence, five years of probation, and 300 hours of community service. The judge believed that Gary wouldn't be a danger to anyone in the community. He was only a danger to the man that he had already killed. If Gary violated any of the terms of his probation, he would have to serve his seven-year sentence in prison. However, if he followed all the rules and regulations, his suspended sentence would be dismissed. And this is exactly what happened to Gary. He lived out the remainder of his life under the radar and only gave a few interviews before his death. When asked if he regretted killing Jeffrey, his response was no. Would he do it again? Gary said that he would. But you might be wondering, how did Jody, the victim of this situation, feel about his father killing his abuser? Apparently, it put a heavy strain on their relationship. Across the country, many saw Plaché as a hero, but in the eyes of his son, it was much more complex than that. Jody would later release a book about the sequence of events called Why Gary Why in 2019. In part, he wrote, At first, I was upset with what my father did, because at 11, I just wanted Jeff to stop and not necessarily be dead. Jody first heard about the shooting from his mother, who told him, Last night, Daddy shot Jeff. His gut reaction was anger towards his father for the killing. Eventually, curiosity led him to pick up a newspaper and read the details, something he was ordered not to do. The situation didn't feel real to the 11-year-old, even when he saw the shooting on the 6 o'clock news one night. He recorded the horrifying footage on a VHS tape and would watch it over and over and over. Jody told The Sun in October of this year, I think for a lot of people who have not been satisfied by the American justice system, 
My dad stands as a symbol of justice. My dad did what everybody says what they would do, yet only few have actually done it. Plus, he didn't go to jail. But it is more important for a parent to be there to help support their child rather than put themselves in a place to be prosecuted. That said, I cannot and will not condone his behavior. Despite this, Jody understands why his father did what he did. Jeffrey's grooming tactics involved diminishing the relationship between Jody and his father. Because of this, it took months for things to return to normal between the two after the shooting. As for Jody's feelings towards Jeffrey now, he believes he was a complete sociopath who lacked feeling or empathy for others and only used people for his own gain. Jody hopes that his book can help other victims and survivors. He stated that having proper support is the most important thing, and that most support systems are friends and family that have never dealt with the issue themselves. On October 21st, 2014, Gary Plache passed away due to complications from a stroke caused by diabetes. He was 68 years old. In the span of just five days during the summer of 2016, the Alaskan Avenger had his rise and fall. A man who called himself an avenging angel was in court today. 41-year-old Jason Vukovic is accused of violently assaulting men with a history of sexual offenses involving children. Police say he tracked his victims to their homes and attacked them in late June. And they say in one case he beat a man so severely with a hammer that he fractured his skull. I figured he was going to kill me. He says Vukovic broke into his home in the middle of the night and beat his head with a hammer. He said, I'm going to, I'm the avenging angel, I'm going to mete out justice for the people you hurt. 41-year-old Jason Vukovic used the sex offender registry list to track them down and bestow a vengeance. From June 24th to the 28th, Jason attacked three different registered sex offenders. He broke into their homes, beat them with his fists or a hammer, then stole some possessions and fled. The Alaskan Avenger made his first attack the day he was released from jail for convictions of fraud, theft, possession of a controlled substance, and assault. Around 9.30 in the morning, he knocked on the door of 68-year-old Charles Albee. In 2003, Charles was convicted of second-degree abuse of a minor. As soon as Charles answered, Jason pushed his way inside and ordered him to sit down. Jason slapped him in the face repeatedly before stating that he was there because he found Charles's name on the offenders list. Jason then grabbed some of his possessions and walked out the door. Charles claimed that Jason was carrying a notepad with him. Just two days later, 25-year-old Andre Barboza heard a knock on his door at 4 a.m. In 2014, 
Andre was convicted of possession of child pornography. He opened the door to find Jason and two women at his side. Once the group got confirmation of Andre's identity, Jason pulled out his hammer and forced their way in. Charles was ordered to sit in a chair before he was punched several times in the face. The entire attack was filmed by one of the women on her cell phone. Jason threatened to quote-unquote bash his dome in with the hammer and stated that he was there to collect what the man owed. After the beating was done, the three stole some valuables and drove off in Andre's truck. The Alaskan Avengers' last attack was the most brutal. Shortly after midnight on June 29th, Jason broke into the home of 67-year-old Wesley DeMarest, a man convicted of attempted child sex abuse in 2006. Jason ordered the man to get on his knees. Wesley said no. Jason gave him another chance, ordering him to lie down on his bed. Wesley again said no. Jason then told Wesley, I'm an avenging angel. I'm going to mete out justice for the people you hurt, just before using a hammer to crack open his skull. When Wesley regained consciousness, he was in a pool of his own blood. His roommate told him that police were already on the way. Authorities found Jason sitting in a car close by with a hammer, several stolen items, and a notebook with the names of the three individuals he attacked, plus six more registered offenders. He was arrested and charged with 18 counts of assault and robbery. Jason described the reasons behind his actions in a letter from prison. He wrote, After being physically and sexually abused by a predator, my life was forever changed. I literally gave my own existence no value or concern. I became a thief and a liar and went on to make many poor choices throughout my life. The predator Jason is referring to was his own adoptive father, Larry Lee Fulton. In 1989, he was found guilty of second-degree abuse of a minor. He was sentenced to just a three-year suspended sentence. Larry didn't have to go to jail, but the judge ordered him to stay away from his unidentified victim. Quote, After this adoption took place, I was beaten with two-by-fours custom-made for the purpose of inflicting pain. I suffered through repeated molestation at his hands. He was a pretty terrible person in general and would disrupt the night by coming to sexually assault me. His adoptive father would use late-night prayer sessions to molest him. After Larry's sentence, he immediately returned home to Jason and further isolated him, Jason claimed. Jason went on to write, Children should be able to play in the streets and parks and go to church without the threat of pedophiles lingering around them. 
In the end, he added, My own heart may have been broken long ago, but with all my being, I support every child in pursuit of their dreams. Jason's brother Joel also endured the abuse and has not recovered from the trauma. He stated, I'm never going to get better. Never. The Anchorage Daily News reported that Joel ran away from his home and later got a PhD. He now has a successful career in cybersecurity and lives in California with his family. He's still receiving counseling for his trauma. Joel and Jason had gone on two completely different paths and had only talked twice over two decades. Despite this, he came to Jason's trial to support him and asked the judge to give him a lighter sentence. Quote, have mercy on him. Help him. At the end of the trial, Jason accepted a plea deal from the prosecution. In exchange for pleading guilty, they removed a dozen charges, and he was convicted of first-degree attempted assault and a consolidated count of first-degree robbery. The judge sentenced him to 25 years in prison and a five-year suspended sentence. He told him this, Vigilantism is not something that we accept in America. It's not something that we accept in this community. And it's just simply something that will not be tolerated. It was not the purpose of the registry to allow people to do their own brand of justice. The purpose of the registry was to keep the community safe. Jason apologized to the court. Quote, I realize now that I have no business assaulting these individuals or taking the law into my own hands. I should have sought mental health counseling before I exploded. In an article written this year, one of Jason's attack victims is now 70 years old and struggles to form coherent sentences. He lost his job due to the traumatic brain injury Jason gave him. He stated, quote, It just pretty well destroyed my life, so he got what he wanted, I guess. Unlike victims of child abuse, Wesley got to live a long life before it was quote-unquote destroyed. Meanwhile, people like Jason, his brother Joel, and Wesley's own victim have to deal with trauma from their childhoods for the larger portion of their lives. Jason now rejects vigilante justice and urges others like him to seek inner peace instead. He wrote, quote, I began my life sentence many, many years ago. It was handed down to me by an ignorant, hateful, poor substitute for a father. I now face losing most of the rest of my life due to a decision to lash out at people like him. To all of those who have suffered like I have, love yourself and those around you. This is truly the only way forward. Alright, that is the end of our episode, and I hope you enjoyed hearing about these cases of vigilante justice. 
and this is actually my last episode of 2021. I'm going to spend some much-needed time with loved ones, and I hope you all get to do that as well. Um, I also just found out that Spotify is now doing ratings for podcasts. So if you're listening to this on Spotify, just click on my name and click on the stars and give me however many stars you want to. Um, it, w- it would really, really help me out um, to push my podcast to a larger audience. So if you do that, thank you so much. In some recent true crime news, um, apparently the West Memphis chief of police resigned a couple days ago. And Damien Eccles' attorney says that the West Memphis 3 evidence was not destroyed and can now be tested. This news is coming out just months after it was reported that evidence in the case was missing or destroyed. And this evidence is what Damien Eccles' attorney wanted to do new DNA testing on. And if you have no idea what the West Memphis 3 case is about, 30 years ago, three eight-year-old West Memphis boys were found murdered, and three teenagers were charged in their murders wrongfully. They've since been released from prison, but they've never been exonerated for the crimes. There is an incredible true crime documentary called The West Memphis Three. I believe it's by HBO, so definitely give that a watch if you haven't seen it. Damien Eccles... Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly were the men who were then teenagers who were wrongfully convicted of the murders. And the true murderer has never been caught, although there are some interesting theories out there. Damien Eccles tweeted, The chief of police was not truthful. He has now resigned, and we know that none of the evidence was destroyed. It can now be tested to see who left DNA at the crime scene. My attorney was in the evidence room this morning and saw it with his own eyes. Every piece is still there. In other recent true crime news, investigators are hoping to solve the cold case murder of John Benet Ramsey. It's been 25 years since she was found murdered in her home on December 26, 1996. There has been a ton of insane theories about who the murderer or murderers were, But investigators are hoping that the advancements in DNA testing can solve this case. Apparently, nearly 1,000 DNA samples have been analyzed. They're now actively reviewing genetic DNA testing. In a quote from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, they said, As the department continues to use new technology to enhance the investigation, it is actively reviewing genetic DNA testing processes to see if those can be applied to this case moving forward. Police apparently announced a similar statement in 2016 on the 20th anniversary of her murder, but I hope this one holds more truth. In personal news, my cat almost committed suicide. Um, she's okay, nothing happened, no trigger warning needed. Um, my cat has a little fishing rod kitty toy with a mouse on the end and she plays fetch. She's a cat that plays fetch. She's one in a kind, one in a million, and she likes to drag it under my desk when I'm working, unfortunately. Um, my computer was not plugged in all the way 
there was some metal prong showing, and she just so happened- oh, I didn't mention this- the- the toy, um, connected to the mouse and the handle, that piece is metal. It is a very, very thin piece of metal, so it doesn't break, which is nice, but not for this event. She unfortunately dragged it in the perfect position to where it touched the metal prong of my computer, and it literally exploded. Um, it exploded right under my feet, and thank God above that she was holding the mouse in her mouth and not the metal part, because she might have died. I'm, I'm really not sure, but she could have died. Um, the power went out in about half of our apartment, and the maintenance men came by, and they just changed the fuses, and everything was fine. Um, but everything's okay. No one got hurt, um, and I will never have any sort of metal toy in my house again. Anyways, on the last episode, I asked for some feedback about changing my podcast name and my profile picture, and if you guys liked the episodes I was doing. And the only response I could find was from one person on Instagram. Uh, thank you, Reagan, for responding to that and giving me your opinion. As we know, when we go home for the holidays, there's always some family members that like to bring up politics that we don't necessarily agree with. Um, if that happens and you need a scapegoat, bring up my podcast. Bring up a disturbing episode on my podcast and just, just keep talking about it. Just, just ruin the entire appetite of your family member so they stop talking about politics. Um, but I think that's it. It's been a great almost year. It'll be a year towards the end of January 2022. Um, but thank you all so much for listening. I never thought that I would have this many listeners. I have, um, 85,000 followers officially. Um, and I appreciate every single one of you so much. And I look forward to making more episodes for you all in the future. So I will be gone until 2022, but don't worry. It's not that far away. Um, You'll be hearing from me pretty soon, so take some much-needed time off if you can, spend some time with the people you love, and I'll see you next year. Well, you'll hear me next year. Yeah. Alright, goodbye.